welcome to Meet the PAs podcast. Hear the experiences of seasoned PAs, up and coming development of policy from industry leaders, and the exploration of those new to the career. Interviews done with a Canadian twist at Maple Syrup. everyone. Thanks for joining us on today's episode. We're talking with Jana Malone today. She's a PA in Ontario. And well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So as a, a short introduction to us, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're working and your typical day-to-day life. Sure. So I'm working in neurosurgery uh, at the Ottawa Hospital. So that's Ottawa, Ontario. I work for one physician out of a group of nine neurosurgeons. um, And typically I'll run two outpatient clinics. So there's a CyberKnife clinic, which is essentially a radiation therapy clinic for all of our patients that receive radiation, either in addition to surgery or sort of as their primary management. Um, And then I also run sort of the the surgery clinic where I see uh, almost everybody in consultation. And then I see everybody in follow-up as well. Typically spend usually a day and a half in the operating room as well throughout the week, either you know a half day, half day, or some kind of combination of that as needed. And I work around the resident schedule for that. Um, I don't do any inpatient management, so it's really just sort of clinic and operating room for me. Okay, great. What's, how many patients do you see in a typical day? Uh, usually about uh, anywhere sort of from 12 to 15. Oftentimes I'll end up seeing more patients than anticipated because I see a lot of uh, people that call in sort of day of questions or with emergencies. I also see a lot of people that just come in sort of for routine wound checks or to have their staples removed by the nursing staff who end up having questions or concerns about uh, about the incision or about something that the patient has said. So uh, typically it ranges between 12 and 15, but sometimes more, sometimes less. That's a busy day. Yeah. Yeah. And how long have you been there? I've been there uh, here since the end of November 2017. So we're about uh, oh, 10 months now that I've been here. Mm-hmm. And is this your first em- uh, place of employment? It is. Yep. I graduated from McMaster in uh, 2017. So this is my first job. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So what drew you to neurosurgery? Uh, I really wasn't drawn to neurosurgery uh, before sort of my my clerkship year, if I'm going to be honest. Um, I really loved family medicine. But the thing about neurosurgery is that really with every single patient, you can make such an impact. Um, A lot of what we do is sort of palliative, but being there for the patients and their families sort of as they're going through one of the toughest things they're ever going to go through um, is just really meaningful. And the staff that I work for as well is just I, I mean, I can't rave about him enough. So really, it was just sort of the people and the impact that I got to make with every patient that that drew me to neurosurgery. So you said most of your patients end up being palliative. Is there, is there what are the most common diagnoses that you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, my surgeon specifically does neuro-oncology and cerebrovascular surgery, which means that we see a lot of tumors and a lot of bleeds. So uh, I would say the majority of patients are high-grade gliomas or metastatic tumors that have metastasized up to the brain. Um, So I'm seeing a lot of people either new diagnosis or recurrence of malignant tumors. So you might know a little bit about um, how, oh gosh, now what's his name? I know his name. 
He just died and he's from the States. Oh yeah. Senator John McCain. John McCain. Yes. Yeah. He had a glioblastoma, which is um, a a who grade four glioma. Um, So obviously that's sort of the most malignant one. So that's how he passed away. Yeah. Unfortunately, I guess he only, he only lived about two months um, following his, uh, his diagnosis, but we're, you know, with the, with the advances that we have and our combination of therapies, we can typically give people, you know, a, a pretty good quality of life for a lot longer than that with what we're doing. but Oh, I thought he had more like a year and a half. Oh, is that it? Oh, okay. Well, I, I thought it was uh, shortly after his diagnosis that he passed away, but. Well, I know, I know for sure it was like just days after he, he decided to not undergo any more treatment. But, oh, okay. I, but I've known gotcha. for quite, I've known okay. for maybe a, a, at least a year, I've known that he's had, okay. had a glioblastoma. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No worries. No worries. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. That's not a, not a diagnosis people want to have for sure. No, exactly. No. Okay. So I also know that you've been involved in quite a bit of research or at least a little bit of research. And yeah. we want to say congratulations on getting your abstract accepted. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I have sort of research on the side when when and if there is free time. I've got several projects sort of always on the go. Um, most of it is sort of retrospective chart review. Um, the one that sort of was accepted most recently to the Society of Neuro-Oncology was a paper studying awake brain surgery for um, patients that are greater than 80 years of age for, for any kind of tumor really, but uh, the majority of them were, were high-grade tumors. So these are high-risk patients, they're all over 80? Exactly. Yeah. So they're typically exceptionally comorbid and usually they they don't come in with a great performance score. So in terms of surgery, they wouldn't typically be deemed good surgical candidates, but uh, we've sort of developed this method of, of performing surgery awake, which has lots of benefits to it. One is that they recover from the anesthetic much, much quicker because they get the same same types of medication, but they get much lower doses of all the medication. So they're groggy, they're, they're sedated throughout surgery, but they're not asleep. They don't need to be intubated. So that reduces any kind of cardiac risk. It reduces all the pulmonary risks associated with intubation, pneumonia, aspiration. Uh, it helps get them up out of bed a lot quicker because the, the anesthesia is out of their system much quicker. And then it also reduces the absolute risk associated with surgery. So typically with a sleep surgery, you're looking at about a 10 to 15% absolute risk. So that includes everything from death to vision dysfunction, concentration and memory dysfunction. Um, and that re- the being awake reduces it down to about 5%. And that's because when somebody's awake, we can actually stimulate the, the cortex of their brain and ask them to move their hand and tell us what they're seeing and see exactly which gyri and which sulci uh, account for specific parts of their brain, speech, vision, uh, movement. And those are things that we can't necessarily do when they're asleep. So it's making typically non-surgical candidates good surgical candidates. That's fantastic. Yeah, it it has been so far. (laughs) Wow. We've done 14 patients so far, and this is between 2009 and 2018. 
which doesn't seem like a lot for the amount of time that we've been doing it, but it's taken a long time to sort of develop the protocol. And uh, and not everybody that's above the age of 80 years old is going to be a surgical candidate. It's based on where the tumor is, what kind of symptoms they already have. If it's amenable just to radiation, then certainly that would be sort of the way to go because it's much less invasive. But if it's not something that's amenable to radiation, either because they've already had radiation, the size of the lesion, then, then we've sort of included them in this group of people that gets awake surgery. So the age range was 80 to 93. So 93 was actually the oldest patient that we did. And we, we classified the tumors by location, by volume, by type of tumor. So eight of the 14 tumors were high-grade gliomas. So they started in the, in the actual brain tissue itself. Four of them were metastatic tumors. So they came from somewhere else. Uh, one was an atypical meningioma, which sort of acts like a cancer, but isn't actually a cancer. And then one case was thought to be tumor and actually only ended up being radiation necrosis, which is great for the patient. But... Wow. wow. Yeah. So, um, I mean, overall, uh, we, in terms of our results, we looked at things like surgical time. Um, typically, being in a wake surgery does delay or it does extend the amount of time that it takes to actually do the entire operation because about an hour, an hour and a half is spent at the beginning of the operation by anesthesia actually uh, numbing all of the skin and, and underlying nerves around the entire circumference of the head. So that takes uh, quite a while for, for anesthesia to, to do sort of a ring block, for but, but for the head. Um, so they do that at the beginning of the block. operation. Yeah, exactly. So that takes, you know, an hour, an hour and a half. And then the rest of the surgery is essentially carried out the same way. Usually the patient sort of dozes in and out of in and out of sleep until we get to the point where we need to take bone off, um, and then we wake them up so they're not sort of startled by the sound of the drill. Uh, and then once we're looking at the dura, um, typically the patient will be awake for the next hour or two um, while we get down to the brain itself and then stimulate the cortex of the brain so that we know what is functional and what is non-functional tissue. So in terms of outcomes, um, pretty much everyone does, does very well immediately after surgery. 62% of the people that we looked at had, had improvement in, in their post-operative status compared to their pre-operative status. Typically, that's because if you have a, a big tumor or a big lesion, it's causing mass effect and it's causing swelling in the brain. So if you alleviate that, they may actually have some deficits which improve after surgery. So um, quite a number of them improved immediately after surgery. The, the post-operative stay was, uh, it, it averaged 4.7 days, plus or minus about two days. Overall, awake surgery does reduce the, the stay in hospital because patients recover from the anesthetic quickly. They're less likely to have a new deficit after surgery because we're able to stimulate and avoid areas that would result in a deficit. So it sort of saves the hospital money as well because they're, they're up and out of the hospital quicker. Um, and then the, the sort of last thing that we looked at was how they did in between the time that they had surgery to radiation and then after radiation. So another thing uh, that we're going to be probably investigating in the near future is that a lot of people uh, in terms of their functional status deteriorated after they got radiation therapy. And in somebody that's uh, greater than the age of 80, it's a little bit tougher to bounce back from that. So um, it's currently sort of the standard of therapy to get surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation, um, but we're going to be looking into sort of the risks and benefits associated with radiotherapy for these people. So first of all, congratulations. That's really quite amazing that you've been able to participate in such an uh, interesting uh, research project. 
for other PAs out there, I mean, I'm really hoping to see more PAs become involved in research, research and take leadership roles within that. Could you describe how you got involved in this particular research project and what your role in it was? Sure. Yeah. So um, the surgeon that I work for is the department head of neuro-oncology. And then we work closely um, with the department head of neuroanesthesiology. So I heard that they were sort of just brainstorming how to look at what kind of effect we've been able to have on on these patients. Um, And so I offered to, to sort of step in and do the bulk of sort of the data mining. As I said, it was a retrospective analysis. So basically I just asked the anesthesiologist to send me all of the, you know, all of the, the patient list of everybody over the age of 80 that, that's gone through awake surgery with us. And I did all the data collection from, from their charts. So looking at their notes before surgery, looking at the operative report, uh, looking at the, you know, the, the anesthesia record to see how long the surgery was, what their performance score was before and after, uh, when they got radiation, how much radiation, and then obviously looking at all of their imaging to try to obtain tumor volume, tumor location, pathology to try to determine tumor type. So I basically did all of the data mining. I assisted as well in in some of the surgeries that were completed in late 2017 and and early 2018. So I was in the operating room for some of these surgeries, but uh, the bulk of it was the data mining. And then I also helped write up sort of the the abstract that was submitted. And then moving forward, I'll be helping write up the the full paper, helping with the poster presentation as well for our November uh, conference. And so how did you know what data to collect, how to re, you know, record that? Did you use an Excel file? How did you know yeah, what just, to grab and where to put it? I just used an Excel file for that. Um, I mean, it was pretty basic. Uh, in terms of what to collect, I really just started with what I thought would be useful and then ran all of that by both my supervising physician and then the anesthesiologist. There was a couple of extra things that they um, that they wanted me to add on, like tumor volume was a little bit harder to calculate. So that was something that I added on after. Um, but most of it was just really sort of the basic things that we look at when we treat patients. So age, performance status, uh, how much radiation they got, where the tumors were, what type of tumor it was. Those are all sort of basic things that guide um, how we're going to treat somebody. So I figured they were all things that we should probably at least, you know, have down um, for each patient. So, And did you have to go forward in front of an ethics board? Did you have to get permission from the hospital or the university to move forward with this? And if so, how did you apply for that? Yeah, so there was an ethics approval process through the University of Ottawa. I was I did not have a role in that. So that was the um, neuroanesthesiologist that submitted all of all of that, um, all of those documents. So I did not have a role in that, um, but it was ethics board approved. So it helps to have maybe for other PAs looking to get into research, it helps to either be associated with a university hospital or with a physician who's done some research before and yeah. can help support the the process in terms of knowing what comes next and how to do that. Yeah, certainly I would say so. In addition, it's a lot easier to get published and to to sort of get your paper in there with somebody, you know, when you're working with somebody that already has several publications. So just from a perspective of knowing what to do when, knowing how to do things, but also um, I think, you know, papers prefer or have a, you know, there's a question when you're submitting things about whether or not you've already 
be published before. So I do think that there's a preference towards people that have already been through the process and already have a number of publications to their name. So that would be, yeah, I would say that would be my advice would be to try to latch on to somebody or, or work with somebody that uh, already has experience in this just to make your life a little easier. Mm-hmm. Sort of related, but a little bit off track. What made you motivated to get into research in addition to all of your already intense clinic work? Yeah, well, I mean, I was at the Kappa conference last year, and uh, there was a presentation on the impact of PAs and the research that 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 one of the PAs had done just on their impact in an infectious disease service. And that was really when I said, wow, you know, I, I want to do some research. And so initially it was, I wanted to research what my impact was on the, you know, the neurosurgery clinic, the neurosurgery operating room, um, saving patients from eMERGE trips, et cetera. But this opportunity just kind of jumped up first. I'm still hoping to do the rest of that research. But when I, you know, when I overheard uh, this discussion going on, I thought it would be an excellent opportunity as a, as a starting point. And it certainly, you know, taken off from there. So, so that's great, but it was, you know, it didn't start off as wanting to do this research project. It was just a a taste for research in general. And I just kind of jumped on the first opportunity available. That's awesome. So how much time in a given week do you spend doing research in addition to your clinic work? Yeah. I mean, some weeks I don't do any, you know, it kind of, it comes in ebbs and flows. So some weeks I don't do any, some weeks I'll spend, you know, an entire work day doing the research. The the rest of the research that I have going on aside from, from this um, awake craniotomy stuff, I would say, you know, at the end of the day, when all the work is said and done, if I have extra time, I'll probably spend an hour or two a week doing, like right now I've got aneurysm research going on. That's another thing that we do is ruptured and unruptured aneurysms and, you know, clipping versus coiling and and things like that. So um, I probably spend an hour or two a week on research. Wow. And you're given work time to do that. Yeah. I mean, I don't really have a rigid schedule at work. There are days where I'm in the operating room and I start at 7.30 and circumstances happen and I don't leave until 12 hours later. But there are also days where I start at one and end at four. So uh, really, I don't have a rigid schedule at all. It's just if there's work to do, then I get it done. And if there isn't work to do, then I may spend a couple extra hours doing research. So yeah, I mean, it's it's very flexible. I have got a really good work environment. So for some people, it, it you know, it may not work out that way, but it certainly does for us. Do you think it, you're, you're not the first PA at the Ottawa hospital, correct? There are several other yep. PAs there. Right? Yeah, yeah. There's quite a few of us here. I think there's at least like 10 or 12. Wow. I didn't realize it was them. I thought it was yeah. five. Okay. Yeah, no, six. we've got wow. quite a few in internal medicine. Uh, there's an orthopedics PA. There's a rehab PA. There's an oncology PA. There's myself. There's some PAs at CHEO, I think, in gastroenterology. So I haven't met them all, but there's quite a few. Impressive. Do, do you feel that that helped the transition for you? are the only one in neurosurgery. Is yeah. that right? Um, I had worked with PAs at the Ottawa hospital while I was doing my clinical rotations, and that was a huge help. Unfortunately, when I started working here, I didn't really get to meet up or discuss my job with any of the currently working PAs, but certainly when I was in my clinical rotations at the Ottawa hospital, um, they were kind of my, you know, the people that I leaned on to show me the ropes and um, show me how to use the computer system. I sort of just tag teamed with them for all of my rotations, but um, that was, you know, sort of specifically in internal medicine and in orthopedics, there were PAs 
uh, at the Ottawa hospital where I did those rotations. So that was a huge help. So was the neurosurge position just posted or was your rotation at the hospital, how you made the connection and the job was created? Yeah, it was the rotation at the hospital. So I had been asking around about who would be a good physician to do a rotation with for the potential of creating a job. And um, somebody had recommended my supervising physician. So I reached out to him and, and he said he would you know, love to have me for the rotation. So I spent a month with him and uh, I worked really closely with him, the residents and the nurse practitioners who, who manage the floor. Uh, so all the inpatients. And, uh, and after he, he said, you know, what are you going to do when you graduate? And I told him I didn't really have anything lined up, but there's funding for us. And I asked if he'd be interested in applying and he did and he got it. And here we are. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Are you from the Ottawa area? I am. Yep. I grew up here. So I was extremely happy to be able to come back. Oh, that's perfect. And there's a lot of, you know, a year ago, there was kind of a lot of kerfuffle happening around the Ottawa hospital and surrounding area with being included in the union. Mm -hmm. Do you have an update for us on that? That's ongoing. Um, So we have, yeah, it's, it's a mess, but we have, unfortunately, it's sort of lost that battle. We were fighting to not be unionized for the most part, um, just because of the impact that would have in terms of seniority, salary, people concerned about losing their jobs. But so we have lost the battle on being unionized. So there is a process going on right now to unionize us. So the union is working with PAs and the hospital um, to try to negotiate what would be reasonable. So um, with the unionization comes obviously the whole seniority thing. Um, We would have to be on a pension plan, on a benefits plan. But a lot of us are hired, like myself, are hired privately by one physician or by a group of two or three physicians. And so it's not entirely reasonable for one physician to be paying for my entire hoop plan and my entire benefits package. So um, things are kind of stagnant right now. uh, And they kind of have been for for the last, you know, couple months, I would say. But uh, behind the scenes, there's lots of negotiating between the union. Um, We have two PA representatives for all of the PAs at the Ottawa hospital. So they work closely with the union and the hospital to try to come to agreements about what can and can't be included in, in our agreement uh, to ensure that we all get to keep our jobs and everybody's happy. So, so you, because yeah, this gets really confusing. You're not employed by the hospital. Correct. Yeah. I'm in, I'm a private employee of my doctor, but I work through the hospital and so you have, you have um, the, like the hospital board has given you, privileges to work at the hospital. Yeah. But they have no part in your employment. Correct. Yeah. They are the sort of, they're who my pay comes through. So when I get a paycheck, it's through the Ottawa hospital, but the pay center for it is my physician. So my physician pays towards the pay center and then the pay center, which is technically through the Ottawa hospital pays me. So um, I don't get checks or anything every two weeks for my doctor. It technically comes from the Ottawa hospital, but he's paying it in the end. So Which is how they can force you to unionize. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's convoluted. So, I mean, I could be doing the exact same thing at a clinic down the road and not have any problems. It's just because I work, I work out of the Ottawa hospital that this has become an issue. Okay, so anyone who's employed in Ottawa out of a private 
separate clinic won't have this have to be unionized at all. It's only anybody employed or working out of the hospital. That's correct. Yeah. And, and what, okay. Remind me the name of the union because I always get the name wrong. It's OPSU. OPSU. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's part of the paramedical union. So we've, that was the battle that we were fighting was to say that we were not paramedical. I mean, by definition, we think that we're medical and should be treated sort of in the same regard as, as the physicians and the residents. But that was the, that was this big court battle that we were fighting was to say that we were not paramedical. Um, but that's what we've lost. So we've been grouped in with all the paramedical employees now, um, like the, well, like the paramedics, like the physios, like the OTs. So we are technically supposed to be getting the same kind of benefits, pension as them, sick days as them, seniority as them and whatnot. So we'll see how they group us into that, uh, that union. This just blows my mind how people can force you to unionize. It just blows my mind. Yeah, <laughs> that's the thing because I think there was, you know, a very strong consensus that none of us wanted this, but it wasn't really, that wasn't really the fight that we were fighting. It was more to say that we weren't paramedical, but now that we've been deemed paramedical, there's already a union for paramedical employees. So we're just kind of being funneled into that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's complicated. It's been going on a lot longer than even I've been around. I have, you know, spoken um, with the, the union representative and, and with our, repre- our PA representatives. So there's an email string that goes back and forth anytime, you know, anytime any new information pops up. But I, I really think it's going to be a slow process. Like the negotiations for anything are never very fast. So I think it'll probably be another year or two before we really see any definitive changes. Yeah, I wonder if it's going to come down to the fact that if your paycheck's coming from the hospital, then they're going to have to pay for your pension and benefits and the doctor yeah. pay your salary. And that's, that's, what we've, that's sort of what we've proposed and asked for, um, but the hospital funding being funding has sort of shot that down and said they're not paying for any part of it. <laughs> So of course. We'll, we'll see, you know, we're not going down without a fight, but we'll see. Yeah. Like it just seems silly. Otherwise you could just be an independent contractor with hospital privileges and you wouldn't have to worry about any of it. Exactly. Yeah. So which is what all the physicians are. Exactly. Yeah. So that's why we were saying, that's why we were saying we should sort of be grouped into that category and, you know, what one physician wants to do with their PA versus what another one wants to do with their PA, you know, could be totally different pay scales could be totally different, you know, medical or, or sick leave, uh, education, all that stuff is, you know, really varies from, from department to department, person to person. So I think it's going to be tough for them to standardize all of this. And have you guys had, as a group, the PAs in Ottawa, have you guys had discussions about whether or not you, you think this is going to start spreading? I mean, now that this has happened in one place in Ontario, yeah. what's the likelihood that other hospitals are going to start to follow suit? I think this is the pilot project is what I've heard. So they've decided to start with Ottawa, see how it goes, and then and then possibly spread it out to the rest of the hospitals in Ontario for the rest of the, you know, OPSU employees or the rest of sort of the paramedical employees. So from what I understood, we're the pilot project. So <laughs> Okay, so the court case that you lost saying that yes, okay, PAs are paramedical. That pertains solely to Ottawa PAs though, right? So would that have to then be argued again 
in, in a larger court system to say all PAs in Ontario are paramedical or, or does your court case qualify as that? I'm not sure. Um, I think, you know, the one that we were fighting was just for the Ottawa hospital, but I think now that there's that precedent and they have, you know, any other judge now has this case to go off of where we have been deemed paramedical, I think it becomes a lot easier for this to become more viral throughout Ontario because you have a precedent now. You have something to look at and say, well, that's been the case in Ottawa where this pilot project was. It's easy to just make it happen everywhere else. It's really too bad. I mean, we have another province where PAs are clearly not considered and lumped as part, part of paramedicals and they have their own union. Mm-hmm. Um, Manitoba has, you know, been a leader in this. It's really, I mean, obviously it's confusing to you too as to how they concluded this, but uh, you're right. It's a concern. All of us in Ontario are concerned that this is now going to spread. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, us more than anyone at this point, I can tell you. Yeah. There's been yeah. lots of emails back and forth, just everyone expressing their concern over, you know, am I going to be able to keep my job if they decide that we need all this extra money to pay for me? Like, who's going who's gonna to do that? Why are they going to want so, to? It's already such a struggle to convince physicians that, that funding is there and get the application in to find the money to pay us already. That's a struggle. And people yeah. are concerned about that. And now add this on top of it, it will be it will be challenged. It just blows my mind because really the, the, the large majority of us in Ontario don't want to be unionized and especially don't want to be unionized in association with, with OPSU, right? As that in particular, Absolutely. but yeah. I, I'm, it blows my mind that they can just, that, why do they want us if we don't want them? They're not like, well, we're go- like they're going to frame it as well, we're going to look out for you and give you job security and make you have a pension and benefits. That's how they're going to frame it. But that's not, they want the union dues. How they much are they? How like much are they? 0.1% of all of OPSU. They could right. care less what happens to kids. So, and how much are union dues? Do you, are you paying them already, Jenna? No, I have no idea. Nobody's really, nobody's shared any information with us. <laughs> I mean, knowing them, they, they'll probably change them just for us. Like, <laughs> no, I mean, our hunch is that they probably want us as part of the union so badly because generally, you know, we, we make a competitive salary compared to some of the other paramedical employees. So I think some of the some of the sort of hypothesis around why they want us so badly is so that they can bump up everybody in their else's, you know, everybody else in the, in the paramedical employee's salary, because now we're there, we're making more. And Mm. so they want to sort of even the playing field by bumping everybody else up. So I don't know how much validity there is to that. Everything's speculation. I don't know why else they would want us so badly. There's only, like I said, 10, 12 of us here uh, and we're causing a pretty big huff over not wanting this to happen. So can't really tell you more than that. So is, and my last question on this topic, sorry, and then we'll move on. But uh, <laughs> there's other people in Ontario or across Canada who want to show support. Is there anything that they can do? Or at this point, is, is, there, is it mute? Um, I think it's probably more on the mute side. I mean, we've lost the, we've lost the, the war in general, you know, we, we keep fighting battles, but I think we, we've lost the war. So, uh, the most that we can do at this point is just continue bugging them about this whole, we're going to lose our jobs if you mandate this, 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 and this, which would be sort of the benefits, the pension coming from our supervising physicians because it's not feasible for them to do all of that for for one employee to one to one physician. So 
I don't know if emails to the union would help at all. Um, just expressing concern that, you know, if this happens and then it spreads, like they're just going to abolish PAs and hospitals because it just won't be, it won't be feasible for people. So. Okay. So we, uh, we, I mean, it should be on everybody's radar because this is ultimately going to affect all of us. And, and we're such a small community. We need to really support each other. Who is the, who are the two PAs in, in charge of representing you guys there right now? So we have Gabrielle Papineau from uh, Rehab Medicine. Uh-huh. Gabrielle is one of them. And then Grant England is uh, the other one. Okay, great. We'll post what we can post and we'll reach out. Okay, thank you. Okay, good. <laughs> um, so this is my favorite part of yeah. this podcast. What made you want to become a PA? Oh boy. So uh, I was always interested in some version of medicine I grew up in, in, you know, surrounded by a family of people in in science and in medicine. I just didn't know what avenue I wanted to take. And I knew that I wanted something with some kind of clinical application working with people. So when I was an undergrad, I started researching master's degrees that had clinical applications to them. And I came across all the normal ones like OT, PT, SLP. And then I found Manitoba's TA program. And I was, you know, I was, what's a PA? So then I started researching it and it just sounded like the absolute perfect fit. Um, so I didn't, I didn't do any PA shadowing. I didn't really, I didn't watch any PA videos. I just read this description on the University of Manitoba website. And I said, that's what I want to do. So I applied to McMaster, not like two months later, and I was there in the next fall. So that's awesome. And I love it. I have no regrets at all. It is it's fantastic. Like I can't recommend it enough to anybody that's, that's thinking about it. And have you had any PA students come for your clinic yet since you graduated? Yeah, I have. Uh, we've had one in neurosurgery uh, and we've had one in interventional neuroradiology who works closely with neurosurgery. Um, so I've had those two come by and they, they were great. I mean, I, I think they enjoyed it. I hope they enjoyed it. <laughs> And then we had, we've had some interest in, you know, throughout the rest of the neurosurgeons in hiring their own PAs, talk about, you know, doing the funding application um, and potentially hiring a, a new grad. Um, and then I've actually convinced my aunt to hire her own PA. She works in family medicine. <laughs> so she's been seeing what I've, she's been seeing what I've been doing for the last year and, uh, and has actually submitted her application to get the funding for a PA student this year. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, I think once people work with PAs, they realize how beneficial they are. My uncle was a family doc in Newfoundland, and he took quite a few PA students, and he was pushing really hard to get PAs in Newfoundland so that he could hire one. Yeah. This was just, he couldn't, he just couldn't keep up. So yeah, he's retired yeah exactly. Now, he's still pushing. Yeah, I mean, primary primary care is so overwhelmed these days. And then, you know, it's not just that, like our waiting list in neurosurgery is probably two years. Uh, And when you have people that you need to fit in urgently, but the physicians in the operating room all the time, I mean, it's just, it's not manageable. And it's, it's not, it's not good. It's not as good patient care as we could be giving. So, I mean, there's, there's a case for everybody to have a PA. It's just, you know, being able to convert people, show them what you're capable of, show them that there is both a financial benefit to them and a patient care and safety benefit to them as well. So I love it. Jenna, you have an excellent story. You've been very well spoken here. I'm sure you're going to convince many people to, to follow your path. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me again. I really appreciate it. I really look forward to reading that article when it comes out.
Yes, I'll I'll link it to you. Please do, please do. Um, thanks, and thanks, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, guys. You too. Bye, Tana. Bye now. Meet the PA's podcast is sponsored by PAHelpers.ca, where you can find all your Canadian exam prep needs. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit us at mtppodcast.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and we would love your feedback.